welcome to School Psych Podcast. Things have been really uh, crazy, I think, uh, going on since since the last time that we've seen you guys. So I hope that everybody's hanging in there. Um, I know that we've got some upcoming podcasts um, uh, scheduled, and um, all of us have been kind of in, in light of the climate and everything. Um, going on right now we've been talking about social justice and we want to we know that our focus tonight is kind of math but we also talked about bringing in kind of um, a lens of social justice and, and being more cognizant of doing that as moving forward through podcasts because um obviously that's really important and um, I hope that everybody's hanging in there and um, yeah so I'm excited tonight um, before I pass it over to Rebecca I wanted to so you guys know that uh, Dr. Vander Hayden has been on with us before and did a really great presentation um, on school psychologists and why we kind of uh, stick to ineffective practices when we know that there are better more uh, profitable practices as far as outcomes and things like that and so that was a really great one and so I was um, I know we all know that she is a math guru as well so really excited to be talking about math with her today. And I wanted to share too that um, around pandemic time, um, I had reached out to Dr. Vander Hayden to ask about what could I be doing um, with my son who's in first grade, um, who loves math and is really engaged in math, and really interested in math. And um, just kind of reached out to her to see what she would recommend as far as what could I be working on with him. And this is before my district was even like putting out lessons and things like that and um, have been really through that process. I expected her to just be like, oh, okay, here's this booklet, you know, get buy this off of Amazon type of thing. But she's been giving me probes and um, giving me feedback and really- That sounds terrible, probes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, CBMs. <laughs> we can talk more about that. <laughs> but, um, and it's just, it's been really enlightening for me to learn a little bit more about math. I think that I, I know a lot about reading at this point, and it's really been kind of growing my skill set and my knowledge base because I really, as a school psychologist, didn't know what kind of a scope and sequence for math uh, skills would be. And I've learned especially, um, I'm sure she'll be talking about like automaticity and whatnot. And so some of the things that I'm like, okay, he knows how to do that, he knows how to add, well, after doing um, some of the CBMs and whatnot, maybe he's not adding as fluently and that's going to like, you know, of course, have impacts um, for, you know, how he needs to progress in, in these skills. So I've just been kind of eating this all up and he's been excited because he gets rewards and treats and whatnot. So I'm especially excited for uh, for tonight to kind of grow uh, my knowledge base of math. And I know that um, it's going to be awesome. So I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca and she's going to tell everybody about how to participate tonight. Rebecca. Hello, welcome everybody. If you are watching us live, thank you for being here. And if you would just log into your YouTube account, you can comment right alongside the video that you're watching. We share um, some of the comments um, in our discussion by just reading them. And sometimes we flash them across the video screen so that um, everybody can participate in this collaborative discussion. So we really encourage you to make your comments and ask your questions as you're watching. If you are watching after uh, and not live later in the week or later in time or listening on wherever you get podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, please feel free to also continue the conversation over time. We do find uh, and look for comments over time on all of our um, social media platforms. So um, please feel free to continue asking questions or discussing the topics that we bring up tonight. And if you use the hashtag psychedpodcast, 
will be more um, easily able to find that comment. You can comment right on Facebook, on either of the two Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page, our dedicated podcast page, or on Twitter, on at Podcast Psyched. Thanks so much. And I'm going to hand it off to Eric, who's going to introduce our wonderful guest. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. Hi, I'm Eric, and I am a school psychologist also in Connecticut. And we are excited to have Dr. Vander Hayden back with us. Um, I think one of, if not the most favorite article of mine, um, I reference it all the time, is why do school psychologists cling to ineffective practices? Let's do what works. And it, it really has uh, resonated with me. Um, so I'm grateful that you came on previously and spoke to us about that. And, and I think in light of so many things that are currently going on, um, you know, we, we are recognizing the pandemic has revealed so many inequities in our education and other systems and, um, and, and the systemic racism that um, is, you know, front and center now uh, rightfully needing to be addressed. Um, but in, in everybody's uh, faces, I think, it, it is important for us to talk about curriculum and uh, effective instruction and access and um, all those things that systems don't always afford to all students. So um, I think it's timely uh, that we talk about this tonight with Dr. Vander Hayden. We're glad she's here. Um, she has been introduced before, but I'd like to tell everyone a little about her um, just in case they're not familiar with her. Um, so. For over 20 years, Dr. Vander Hayden has been helping schools use data to become more effective by building, refining, and studying widely used tactics, including can't-do-won't-do assessment, academic screening measures, RTI decision models to guide allocation of instructional resources, and class-wide math intervention. Uh, after a decade as a district leader and faculty member at LSU and UCSB, she started her own consulting business. She's also published more than 95 scholarly articles and chapters and seven books and has given keynote addresses to state school psychology associations and state departments of education in 31 states and Singapore. She's also directed and evaluated school-wide improvement efforts with strong results on student learning. She now is director of Spring Math? Or? Well, I don't know how much I direct. <laughs> I'm definitely the founder and okay. I, I control what's under the hood, I guess. <laughs> the, the marketing and all of that's out of my hands. Now. Okay. Yeah. Well, Spring Math, math is um, her uh, program right now, um, mm -hmm. business, and uh, she can tell us all about that. You can find more about Spring Math and Dr. Vander Hayden at springmath.com, uh, their website. And so we welcome you tonight to talk to us pretty much about anything you want to, but uh, we're <laughs> the whole thing. I'm, I, <laughs> um, uh, but really, um, your research-based method, methods for instruction, um, intervention, and assessment, especially in math, as well as maybe debunking some educational myths in math. So welcome, Dr. Mander Hayden, and um, yeah. please tell us more. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I've been uh, doing lots of sessions around what it's going to be like when we go back to school. And, mm. you know, school psychologists, um, we need to get some wind in our sails and go back like ready to work because there, there's, there's going to be a lot of work to be done. And, mm. you know, to be honest, math was not in great shape in many places before we lost 25% mm. of the school year. And so um, I think this, this, 
principle of efficiency is going to be really important. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when you have time to spare, you can try things, you can use slightly less effective tactics. You can use things that might work for two or three learners because you think it's cool and kind of balance that with other things. But it's inefficient when you have to accomplish a lot and you know there's going to be a lot of risk. You really need to be selecting, I believe, tactics from the toolkit of tools that you know will work if if you implement well. And, you know, in, in math, sometimes the concept of explicit instruction is like a, a, has a bad connotations like that means you're standing in front of the class talking at children, which is not what explicit instruction is. It needs a, you know, it, it was a PR makeover from the words direct instruction, which people really hated. Right. Um, so then we began to call it explicit instruction. And now pe some people sort of hate that, too. <laughs> so we need another PR makeover. But there's no replacement for it. It's very effective. It does not inhibit curiosity. It doesn't have to inhibit curiosity. Um, I think sometimes it's just jargon. It's just, you know, we talk about things and we use terms that trigger people. And this happens to me on Twitter a lot. And then once you talk it through, most people are they get it and they, they land in a place of, uh, you know, reasonable children. Children need assistance. You can't wait for children to discover math solutions. Not that discovery is not important, but you certainly don't want to wait for that. First of all, some kids will never get there. Yeah, I see um, and, and a lot of parallels between the reading movement and whatnot and and when you talked about discovery and I see a lot of teachers that have that perception that like it needs to be super fun or cutesy or um, they need to figure it out or the, what is right. it called? The productive struggle. They need to like have that, that moment of, Oh, this is hard and I'm going to overcome it. And then maybe I've learned it better. And I don't this know. Is something that an adult thinks sounds good. Like that's a good idea. You know, it's not fun. It's not fun to be asked to do something you don't know how to do. And that doesn't mean that the only way to make you successful is to stand at you and teach you a trick that you can't understand. There are ways to support learners to experience success as they learn. We call that errorless learning. And that's fun and that's engaging. And children are tuned in and they are paying attention and they are actively responding. And then they begin to be willing to take risks to um really reveal their thinking and try a different solution. And you can absolutely encourage that. That comes at the generalization stage of learning, not at the acquisition stage of learning. Mm -hmm. I think what happens is there's this real divorce from content area expertise and instructional science. There's, there's real science to the way we design instruction. Of course, you all know, I, I tie it to the instructional hierarchy. And that's just a great way to organize instruction in the classroom and think about if this is new information for children, then I need to provide acquisition support. And acquisition support includes, you know, close contact and support from an adult who can detect errors. You don't want errors to go untrapped. That's why this notion of productive struggle is kind of backwards, because according to instructional science, that's a bad idea. That's inviting kids to make errors early in a learning sequence, which are really hard to remove later. It'll cost you twice as much instruction to remove them later. So once you've had really successful acquisition, then you move into fluency building, which is about making the learning easier for the student. That's it. So, I mean, Kent Johnson said, says that 
Um, fluency is what you do when no one's watching because you like to do it. It's easy for you. It's not fun to practice your scales on the piano when you're first learning to play the piano. It's laborious. It's hard. Um, that's why parents fight with kids about piano practice. <laughs> my both of my kids got fired from piano, so I, I'm like an expert in that. Um, if only they had gotten fluent, they would have been fine. Um, but then once you are fluent, now you're in the generalization stage of learning. That's where productive struggle should come in. So it's not that it's a bad idea. I just think sometimes it's like, um, well, oh, productive struggle is a good idea. Let's use that without regard to what the learner is ready for or not ready for. How would a teacher determine, you know, or, or a school psychologist determine kind of what stage a student's in and therefore which instructional practices would be most appropriate? Are there norms? Are there? Yeah, of, right. So, you know, um, one of the one of the uh, most effective tactics you can have in your toolkit is really good formative assessment. And that can be informal on the part of a you know, a teacher can certainly in the course of instruction, if you're if you're working on a new understanding, you, you want to check for student understanding and you can do that in ways that are informal. But if you really want to know, um, are children ready for fluency building? And then more critically, have they reached mastery? You really have to time performance. And then, you know, there's just all these myths in the math world that you run into, like timing children will cause math anxiety. That's not true. The data do not support that. In fact, there's a, an empirical study that finds the opposite, that children who were um, uh, to under timed conditions, children performed better and they did not report feeling more anxious. Anxiety is, is uh, related to skill proficiency in math. So one of the ways to reduce anxiety is to improve proficiency. So you can't improve proficiency by avoiding doing difficult math. So there's all these myths in the math world that get in the way of effective practices. So if you want to know that a child has acquired an understanding, you can measure accuracy totally fine. If they are accurate and independent and they can tell you how a solution works, they have acquired that understanding. Um, but once you've gotten to 100% accuracy, there's no more that that metric can tell you. And this is the mistake that most teachers will make and, and others, coaches will make, is they'll say, oh, this child's got it. They're 100% accurate. Now let's introduce new content. And they skip the fluency building stage. They don't pay enough attention to that. So once children become accurate and they enter a fluency building stage of learning, the name of the game is lots of opportunities to respond, goals for improved performance, um, delayed corrective feedback. Um, that, that's it. Opportunities to respond is the main active ingredient in fluency building instruction, just like reading. <laughs> it works the same for reading. And you, you have to now have a timed element to the behavior because you can have two children, both are, both of whom reach 100% accuracy, but one child has to draw hash marks. They're not confident. They're not sure. It's laborious. And the second child can solve it three or four different ways and can explain to a buddy how they solved it. If you time those children, the second child will get way more correct for the same interval of time than the first child. So the timing allows you to detect um, more superior performance that you cannot get that information in the absence of timing the performance. So we don't time children because we want to make them anxious. We time the performance when we're in the fluency building stage of learning because it's that time dimension that will really allow us to detect the level of proficiency that we're after. And the level of proficiency that we're after to say that children are at mastery 
is you asked about norms is a level of proficiency that forecasts that the child will retain that skill over time will be able to use that skill to solve uh, more complex problems or applied work, so generalization, um, and will be able to have faster learning of future-related, more complex work, which is what all of math is, right? Everything builds. So uh, typically for little kids, like in grades um, one through three, you would be looking at like zero to 19 digits correct in two minutes or zero to 10 in one minute would be frustrational. So those children would not be accurate, most likely. Those children are in the acquisition stage of learning. And then 20 to 39, I believe, in two minutes, correct in two minutes, is the fluency building stage of learning. And that's a stage of learning that if you start to introduce opportunities to respond and practice, then their learning will take off. You saw this with your son. The learning takes off once they enter that stage. And then once they reach about 40 per two minutes um, at grades one through three, their performance will level off. They're just not going to really be any faster or being faster is just not that meaningful. Um, and at that level of performance, so 40 digits correct in two minutes tells us that a child is likely, for example, to be able to solve a word problem and not make a computation error that gets in the way. And certainly they can profit from word problem type instruction because they're not struggling with the calculation. The calculation comes easily to them. And when you say when I say digits correct, that might be confusing to people, but it's kind of the responses correct per minute logic that is like oral reading fluency. So words read correctly per minute um, in math. Typically, all of the dig any digit in the correct place value position underneath the problem counts. So every operational step. So like, for example, if you had uh, like uh, multiplication, uh, double digit multiplication, then both rows of partial products plus the, the total product would count every digit. Yeah, underneath the problem would count as a potential digits correct. And usually the criteria, once you go fourth to sixth grade, they double. So you can take what I gave you and it doubles for the fourth through sixth grade. And then usually seventh grade and up, it adds about 20%. Okay. Awesome. I Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a question that I was brave enough to put in our private chat, but I'm just getting the courage to say out loud because I don't know if it's a dumb question. But um, is there a difference or are there important differences between math fluency, proficiency and efficiency? Um, well, I'm not sure about efficiency. I think flexibility is another really important dimension of performance in math. We could talk about that separately because you didn't ask, but, but I would say that one's different. Um, fluency and proficiency, I'm probably going to use those interchangeably, except usually when I say proficiency, I'm referring to like a level of fluency that reflects mastery. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay, when I'm thinking about, you know, being in classrooms, um, I typically don't see a whole lot of fluency practice. Um, I do sometimes with like the multiplication facts um, and the addition facts and whatnot. And so I hadn't really thought about kind of, you know, some of these other skills that now I'm seeing in working with my son and yeah. also my daughter too, um, that to be fluent just with, with counting even, my daughter's yeah. four. And so we're working on that. And so that's been kind of eye-opening to me. So do you feel like schools as a whole aren't doing a good job with that 
um, with building up to that automaticity? Or yeah, all day long. And I, I need to give cre credit to Dr. Robin Cotting. If you don't know her work, she's magnificent. And um, she wrote that article with me that we, we wrote in the communique that got picked up by the Marshall Memo, resonated with people because people, people know we have a gigantic, ginormous math problem in the U.S. We really do. We could do much better. Um, and she talks about that a lot in particular, that it's not just, you know, struggling learners that need fluency building. It's all learners. And this is an area of um, mathematical instruction in the U.S. that is given short shrift, not, not just for struggling learners, across the board for all learners. In fact, my, I have a child who's studying for the SAT this summer, and he's going to be doing fluency building for 27 skills in sequence, which is how we do it at high school, <laughs> because it will help him. You know, it's it just it those those foundation skills. And for us, as you've seen, we have 135 skills. So we do include the basics, but we quickly move beyond the basics. And when you build fluency with creating equivalent quantities, for example, and solving for unknowns with different quantity representations, um, and you build fluency with those skills, then what you're really doing is you're making mathematical thinking come easily to kids. And as they do that work, they will begin to notice things. They will begin to um, have confidence and really have an expectation about quantity and what operations can do to quantity. And that's so important when you get into proportion work because proportions don't behave like whole numbers. And so children go, I don't know what I'm doing. So now I can't think about it. I just have to do the trick. And that is not what we want children to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you've, if you've ever run into dividing with fractions, <laughs> right? And there's like this stupid little saying, yours is not to reason why, just invert and multiply. That is ludicrous because most humans will forget, well, which one do I invert, right? Well, it works. There's a reason that it works. So you have to unpack the algorithm. We don't shy away from the algorithm, but we help children really understand how and why the algorithm works to use math that they already have. We use explicit instruction to script and walk them through almost like guided, supported. You've seen some of it in our protocols, um, Rachel, with your children. And you can really help them understand how it works. It just takes a little practice. And then they're they're less scared of it. They're less prone to forget it. And you know, they're they're less likely to just take the easy way of just let me memorize the trick and then I don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. We're getting a lot of uh, kind of chatter and whatnot. I'm gonna throw up some uh, questions here. This one was a good one. Are there basic norms charts out there? I mean you you were able to because you're so proficient at this <laughs> Kind of rival, yeah. uh, the norms there. Is there a chart or something that people can reference? Well, Frank, let me tell you. <laughs> Here's the problem with math. I mean, I've been doing this forever. I wonder if I have, uh, yeah, let me see. So, yep. So the basic criteria come from this little gem. You see that name? That's Stan Dino and Phyllis Merkin. This is from 1977, which is when I was in kindergarten. And I mean, this book really def operationalized RTI. They just didn't call it RTI. They didn't know that's what it was going to be. But that's where those criteria came to our field from. And where Stan got them from, Stan and Phyllis got 
those criteria from precision teaching. So Clay Starlin and Eric Houghton and Carl Binder and Kent Johnson and folks who had been working with Ogden Lindsay um, in applied behavior analysis who worked with BF Skinner. And so the whole, the unit, the science is response is correct per unit of time. It's easy for us in reading to have all of these norms that make a lot of sense because reading is, is a, there are, there's, there are fewer dimensions to it, really. I mean, it's oral reading fluency. So it's word reading is very powerful. We've got other measures, but you go a long way. You can get a lot of mileage out of just oral reading fluency. There is no oral reading fluency equivalent in math. And the reason I can say that is because I have tried to build it. <laughs> I, everybody I know has tried to build that. And I mean, nobody has had success. So even places that will sort of tell you that they have built a general outcome measure in math, what they've really built is a multi-skill measure that just doesn't perform right. And it won't be sensitive. And you cannot use it to make decisions about how often to change instruction in math. So it's just, it's just not ever going to happen. So what we are finding in math, I think most people are coming around to this, I certainly am convinced, is mastery measurement. Well, mastery measurement is skill specific. And so all of this is to say that the digits correct rules that I gave you hold. But then it's really complicated to think about in math which digits are going to count, how many steps. There are more than one, there's always more than one way to get to a solution, especially as you get into more complicated work. So then being very precise and specific about which digits can count, it just gets very complicated. And so um, I know, you know, in my world, the way we have dealt with that is we have created um, answers correct equivalent criteria for acquisition. Um, it's for frustrational level, instructional level, and mastery level, which would be acquisition, fluency building, and generalization. And those are specific to each skill. And the reason why is because I actually have, I do have a little, I have one of those because I have a, I'm giving a research presentation tomorrow. Let me see if I can just pull it up. Uh-oh, I have to give you permission. Let's see. I'm also on everyone's good questions coming in. We're going to get try and get to everybody for sure, yeah. but we don't want to jump around topics too much. So let's let's close out. Good, good questions. OK, if yeah. this doesn't yeah, if this doesn't work, um, let's see if it works. Did it work? Can you see no. by any chance? No, no. So, yeah, if you go to share screen and then share screen. Probably I have to. Uh oh. I lost my little icon for you too. It may, maybe it might be because I don't, I've never used this app before, so I have to give you permission. Could be. And I'm not doing it right, probably. Let's see. Share has lost permission to capture your screen. Uh oh. Uh oh. Okay, well, let's just forget that because that'll take too long. But then I can walk you through it. So imagine you have like, you know, three times five or three, three plus five is eight. That's easy, that's one digit. But you could also have um, solving for a percentage of a fraction. And that could require setting up a problem step in the middle where you convert the percentage to a fraction quantity and then you multiply and then you get a fraction and then you have to have a simplification rule. Right. So if it's going to be simplified, how many steps are you do you allow where you count all of those digits? 
And that has to be standardized and then those measures have to be tested. So what, what we have ended up doing to, to deal with that is we, we did the work. It took us about 10 years to build a, a, a generator that will generate technically equivalent forms. And we generated, just to give you a sense, we generated and tested over 49,000 problems to um, do that work. So we know with good confidence that if you're doing a solving linear equations probe in our tool, um, mastery might be five answers correct, maybe even could be four answers correct. But that's because the average potential digits correct for that problem type might be 30 compared to like five plus three is eight. It's worth one. So you're going to have to get a lot more even at a younger age because it's an easier skill. And actually, it's kind of interesting just from a science perspective, when we graph those digits correct by content, it just perfectly flowed from the kindergarten baby skills all the way up to the high school skills. That's awesome. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> Very cool. Um, okay, I'm going to scroll back here. We had a question about um, an RTI MTSS manual. Um, do you have any any direction to give um, on where to look? Yeah, uh, we have a high school version um, and we built it. It's kind of a good story. Um, the dance, there's a, a little um, system in Michigan called Dansville and Amy Hodgson is their superintendent. She's just dynamite. She's one of those people that you love to work with because she is like, we have got to do what's right for kids and all kids need to grow. We have, and she will just do it. I mean, she just, I love that kind of superintendent. Just, ah, I love it. And anyway, she was that kind of person. And so she was running spring math in grades K through eight. And then when, when it's time for year two, so a few years ago, she's ready to move into grade nine. And we said, we don't, we don't, have it in grade nine and she said i will give you six months and i will pilot it for you after you build it and if you don't i'm going to put all the ninth graders in the eighth grade level and we said oh don't do that we don't want you to do that that might not work so um so we ended up building it for high school so i'll tell you our tricks i'll tell you what we did what we did is we say you don't need to screen anymore when you get to ninth grade you don't want to start with screening because you know who these children are. You have a wealth of information about them. They've already been tracked into probably into remedial tracks in math or advanced tracks in math. That's already happened by ninth grade. So what we said is you really want to start with class-wide intervention. And you can do this. We can specify um, 20. We have 27 skills that we specify that if you check and you run children through class-wide intervention, then what will happen is everybody will grow and show improvement. And then the children who are in trouble will lag. They'll fall behind as their classmates grow. So we have a 15 minute version that is appropriate for sort of all high schoolers. And then we have a 30 minute version that's really appropriate. Like if you're, if it's a remedial class and you're really trying to adopt this to really boost some lacking skills. And um, the pre-SAT scores in that little district just went through the roof in grades eight, nine, and 10, like dramatic, like very dramatic gains, but well below state average to well above the state average. So, you know, it's not rocket science. It seems like it's too simple, but it actually works. Um, you might wonder what kind of what's in the skill sequence that we use. So we just sort of start and then we build. And we're looking at all the foundational understandings that would be required for a child to be able to do algebra work. 
Thank you, um, Amanda. We had a, a question from Dr. Oganis about um, have you ever done any work with ELLs and are there some factors that may interfere with proficiency as it relates to language, um, but also operations? And um, offline, I just wanted to, to connect this to a conversation we were having just before we went live, um, just about using evidence-based math instruction, evidence-based practices and data um, towards um, social justice goals. And so if we could spend a little time just kind of talking about um, equity and access to evidence-based math instruction um, with ELLs or with um, other students who are um, minoritized or disenfranchised. I like that word minoritized. That's new for me. I learned that from Celeste Malone on Twitter. <laughs> I had to email her and say, or I think I tweeted her and said, no, I emailed her and said, I would like to be able to cite you for this. Can I, can you send me, because I couldn't find it online. Um, and so of course she sent me an somebody else's article, but then she sent me that she has one coming out in communique. And I just love that word because that's really what we're talking about. And minoritized could be um, maybe even a child um, who's on an IEP. Right. Because children who um, have disabilities or are diagnosed with disabilities in schools um, disproportionately low achieve like they they it's it's bad for them. It's not it's not um, usually something that we can say this this making you eligible is going to result in better outcomes for you. Unfortunately, we're not able to say that, but we should be able to say that that's what we need to be moving toward. So, of course, you know, in RTI, from the very beginning, we have always taken apart our data in that way. And we have looked at the data in that way um, by uh, race, by um, language status, by disability status, by whether or not you get free or reduced lunch. Um, oh, and sometimes just prior risk. Like, here's what pops for us all the time is if you failed last year's test, then suddenly all these demographic features that might forecast what's going to happen with you, they don't carry any predictive accuracy anymore. They go away. So what once we say, if you were at risk last year, you're very likely to be at risk this year, which is terrible. Isn't that just a terrible, that's not good in our system, right? That if you're ever at risk, it tends to follow you. So so the, que the question about ELL specifically in language, which I could, I could imagine, like sometimes we get, it's different, but we get a similar kind of question about what about children who are on an IEP and they have a processing disorder. It's, you know, can they really um, handle the language? So, you know, the interventions that we use are um, very scripted. We will simplify the language. We try to build um, facility with mathematical vocabulary. And we try to do that, you know, by, by uh, using terms, uh, very consistently that are not confusing to children. And, you know, the math world is so ripe with words that are just horrifically confusing, like borrow and uh, reduce, you know, reduce a fraction. You never want to say reduce a fraction because that implies to a child that it's going to be a lesser quantity. You never want to say you want to borrow a 10 because you're not going to give it back. So it just invites confusion. Right. And then other classic ones, when um, Sarah, Hart, um, Sarah Powell talks about these a lot and other authors, the 13 ideas that expire in math is a great article that's always updated with these little problems in math language. 
But like when you say 3.5, you're obscuring the very thing you're trying to teach, which is that you're, you're working with a proportional quantity. So you, you want to say three and five tenths, even though it's a mouthful and it's awkward and it might feel like a burden. So with children who have any kind of language or processing or just any child, we want to make this language accessible and easy. So we provide it in a way where it is written. We provide it in um, uh, graphed kind of visual representations that children can solve. We always include in our interventions the um, requirement for children to talk about what they're doing. We want them to talk out loud. A great class-wide intervention is not silent. Children are talking, they're explaining their thinking. And it, and you know, like with your daughter, Rachel, I'm sure it's not like, you know, super sophisticated, foghorn, leghorn kind of, you know, <laughs> you know that cartoon, the little chicken who does the very complicated, I mean, maybe your kids are probably doing that, but you know, even if their language is not sophisticated, that's okay. So like little kids will say, um, you know, it's a bigger number and, you know, we never want to punish that. That's their understanding. So we would want to say, oh, it's a, it's a greater, it's a greater number. It's a greater quantity. It's more. Oh, let's see. So where would it be on the number line? Let's find it. Right. Or let's count it out with some counters. So you're not slapping their hand for saying bigger, but bigger can be confusing because then they think if you write it bigger, it's a greater quantity. And it's not, it has nothing to do with being bigger. It's just greater in quantity. So we can kind of help them talk through that. Um, but I will say, you know, the great equalizer in schools is intervention. It's not assessment in my experience. And I think, you know, I just had this trip down memory lane because I was looking at a program that, that we uh, did for the uh, Department of Ed, the feds back in, I think, 2003. And um, that was that was a question that was asked on this panel was about um assessment and disproportionality. And at the time I said it, I, I still stand by it, is that traditional assessment makes too many assumptions about children. It, I mean, it assumes that they feel good that day. It assumes that they're paying attention. It assumes that you've not used some weird, unfamiliar term that's causing them to not be able to answer the problem. It assumes that they've had good instruction, um, it, which is the big misassumption. So we can we can do away with the need to make those assumptions when we introduce and we control like sort of in tandem assessment with instructional trials. And what you find or what we have found, you know, in, in um, Louisiana in the late 90s, we, we published these data in uh, 2003 and 2005 when we screen the entire school. And this was this was in reading and math. More than 50% of kids who fell into the risk group were um, black boy, black boys and girls, and, but, but most more boys than girls. And these were in grades uh, one and two. And this was in a school that was 16% black. And so we would expect 16% of kids in the risk group, we would expect to be black kids and the rest to be, and it was, that was it. There was only two cats, South Louisiana, so white or black. And then um, with intervention, and it was only five to seven controlled intervention sessions conducted by, you know, researchers, me, uh, this is my dissertation. Um, after intervention, we had 5% of kids overall have a failed response to intervention. So now we would expect 5% of the kids who failed to respond to intervention to be black kids and 5% to be white kids. And we had 7% that were black kids and 4%, I think, that were white kids. So, but it went from 50% to five to 7% to 
with only five to seven intervention sessions, or maybe it was five to nine intervention sessions. I can't remember exactly, but it was it was very powerful. And so we always we're always doing those analyses. The, the uh, randomized control trial of class wide math intervention that I did in Mississippi in 2012. Robin Cotting and I did a secondary analysis of those data and, and used multi level modeling to examine effects by um, sex and race. Uh, free and reduced lunch status, special education status, and prior risk. And that's the one where I was saying the only thing that really accounted for outcome was prior risk. And actually, what was very interesting in that study had uh, over 500 children um, in the before intervention, risk was disproportionate. By and, and this was in Mississippi. So again, it was primarily black and white students. And um, black students were disproportionately lower performing at baseline. Kids who received free and reduced lunch were lower performing at baseline. Children who were on an IEP were lower performing at baseline. So all kind of in the expected direction. Um, then with intervention, because we had random assignment, the intervention group, post-intervention, everything was proportionate. And the control group remained disproportionate. So again, it's intervention that is the equalizer. And intervention is what's hard to do. You know, it's easy to do assessment. That's why we do so much of it, because we can go in, we can knock it out, we can control it. But it's the intervention that makes the difference. And it's the intervention that helps us attain equity. I, I mean, love you know, that. I wonder, tier one as well, too, um, right? I mean, that's what we see. I guess, again, and I hate to keep drawing it back to reading, but that's how I have more knowledge there. When I look at these ineffective tier one strategies that the whole class is getting, and then, you know, the ones that get the private tutors and whatnot are, are oh, able to maybe overcome that. Yes, and um, some of them, they might not need intervention if tier one is good. You know? We talked about this last time. Remember the concept of teacher-proof kids versus um, kids who really, you've just got to get it right. This is the beauty of the science of reading. And I just pray we get a Hanford who comes along in math and gets fired up and right. I, I mean, I'm copying her on Twitter left and right because I'm like, well, it's the same. We have all of these practices in math that are not benign because they compete with the possibility of having effective tactics live in their place. And so when you are working on productive struggle and discovery learning, and that's your go-to. And you think that you can just do a, a charming lesson and that that's going to bring kids to mastery. It is absolutely not. And the kids who are going to suffer are the kids for whom they really needed you to get it right. So the kids who do well, that's not giving you feedback as a teacher that, oh, that tactic must have been so fantastic. Because guess what? Those kids were going to do well no matter what you taught. They were teacher proof. They were going to learn to read anyway. They were going to learn to do the math anyway. If they didn't, they were going to have other resources who were going to support them and help them get there. You know, so many kids have math tutors in high school. So science and math, yes, we need it because, you know, there are lots of children for whom you got to get it surgically precisely right for them to master it. And if you do, they will, they will. But if your teacher is delivering instruction to you that is 
philosophy based. And this is a teacher who has been taught to fear the algorithm. So they let you mess around with manipulatives for 45 minutes in ways that don't make a lot of sense to you. And they hesitate to give you any kind of explicit instruction. You're going to go forward and your trajectory, we know it's so predictable in math that once you fall behind, we know exactly it's just like reading. You're going to fall for that. Remember, that's what they used to say about uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in reading, the Matthew effect, right? That the gap gets wider over time. And then at some point along the way, usually for math, it's about fifth grade when proportions are introduced. It's like you've fallen off the cliff of misunderstanding. And it's this is not mysterious to us because we could have picked you out in kindergarten. It's very predictable. My favorite math study uh, that came out in 2019 was done by Sharon Kuhn and a colleague at Florida Center for Reading Research. And what they found is that you, you could not... Uh, there was no difference in whether or not children took an advanced course track in high school versus a remedial course track in high school in math in predicting that they were going to be at or above the college readiness benchmark on the ACT. OK, after you controlled for fifth grade math proficiency. So, I mean, think about that for a minute. And so then I shared this out one time and, so, and somebody came back and said, wait a minute. So advanced math is no good. No, 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 no. That's not the right conclusion. That's not how I interpret it. I interpret it like you've got to be proficient in all the foundation skills to be able to profit from the advanced math content that you will encounter in the advanced track. And it should be our job to give every child that opportunity. This is what I get so heated up about. Sorry, now I'm going to get a little crazy because the issue is, is the number one predictor that a child is not going to complete college in any academic major is if they have to enroll in a remedial math course. Did you know that? Now, talk about social justice. Now, let's say you work so hard to get there and you've borrowed a ton of money to go for your first year and you just had crummy math instruction, which is not OK. And now you're struggling in math in college. So chances are you're not going to finish and you have to repay that debt. That is not that's not what we should be about. Right. So I always say to teachers, you know, you cannot afford to just sort of do what you like. That's not you're not it's not, you know, teaching is I get that there's a flair to it. It's OK to be creative, but there's also a science to it, just like science of reading. And we as stewards of this really important opportunity for children, we need to give all children access to that economic gateway and life, which is math proficiency. And I, I think likewise, th those children that fall off that cliff, as you mentioned, I think that's a great analogy. Um, you end up, uh, you know, we end up referring these kids for special ed. And, and just as you mentioned, there's no um, data that suggests that we have appreciable differences once a child has an IEP. Um, so we're relegating these kids, you know, down this pathway toward an IEP, which often continues to separate and segregate children in, in a lot of ways, um, at least from access to um, certain kinds of programming and instruction. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that, you know, that 
special ed teachers are not teaching kids because they are, they're doing amazing work too. But sometimes those systems are not always allowing equal access and equitable access. Um, oh yeah. It, special education teachers are overwhelmed. That's right. part of it is that they are also being asked to accomplish the impossible. Right. And one of the things that we're able to do, you know, when you have a, a tool in schools, you can kind of see how it gets used. And when it doesn't get used well, it's like, it's, it's feedback to us. And one of the things that we discovered in our first couple of years is that it's really easy to get systems to adopt class-wide intervention. So don't be afraid of that. I mean, last year when the shutdown came, we had 40,000 kids experiencing class-wide math intervention every single day and growing like crazy. So teachers are willing to do that because once they master the mechanics and it's not that complicated for teachers and they they embrace it and they begin to see because we give them the results right away so they can see that, oh gosh, this is a good use of my time. They're willing to do that. And it only takes 12 to 15 minutes of their time and they can work with every child in the class. The thing I've noticed about teachers over the years, because I really, that's my whole thing is I just really want to be useful to teachers. So our theory of change is the teacher is the agent. That's the person's behavior that we're trying to impact. And they really believe in fairness. And so they really do. I mean, that's that speaks to their heart. You cannot show it teacher that there are eight kids who need intervention and say, let's just work with two. She won't do it. She will take whatever you've given and she'll give it to the other ones too. I mean, they will figure it out because they just can't do that. So what we found that they were willing to do, and this includes special education teachers, is put everybody in a class-wide intervention. And so what we said is, wait a minute, that's not what special education is supposed to be. I mean, these are children who should be getting intensive, individualized, customized, personalized, really powerful individual intervention. So then the question was, how can we make that more efficient? Because what we heard across the country from, from special education teachers is, I can't do that. I only have 45 minutes and I have 10 kids. So I cannot work one. I can't do a 20 minute intervention with every child. So we really need to begin to figure that out. And I think if you can really deploy in a universal way, class-wide intervention, it will surprise you. And so even like these questions, the question about the ELL students and how do you really sensitively determine risk with ELL children in math? Because their performance may be lower performing, but we used to see that in reading, same kind of thing. Like I remember that in when I worked in Tucson. Um, but what you do is you don't pay attention to their static single point in time performance to signify risk. You pay attention to how fast they grow when you give them a well-controlled dosage of intervention. And what should happen is no matter how, how where children are, if you deliver the right type of intervention, then they should grow and they should begin to have trials to criterion that look very um, promising and comparable to their classmates. And if they're not, then you say this is a child logically who needs more than what they're currently getting. So let's let's move them to a more uh, intensified intervention option. But what should happen is that's a very small number. If you run class-wide math intervention at a, in a universal way and you really tend it, which is what most people fail to do, I'll give you an example. District-wide in Vail, Arizona between 2002 and 2005, we took that district from middle of the pack in the state in math performance to rank order position one. And they've stayed there ever since. And um, we did that within within the first year. Their LD rate went from 6% of their population to 3.5%. And the only way we did it was that we really tended to class-wide intervention. Um, we had a 98% successful response to intervention at the class-wide level for math. 
So we only this what this meant was we only had to give individual intervention to two percent of kids. That's doable. You know, but it's not doable for teachers to give individual intervention to 10 percent of kids. They can't do it. Even special ed teachers can't do it. We have a lot of questions coming in. I know that um, Eric has a question too, and we're gonna, we're gonna try and get to everything. And I've got questions. There's too many questions. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> yeah. So I I I mean I in my tool I I wrote all the interventions. This is my life's work. It's all I've done. I built it because I felt like teachers needed it. I couldn't talk it. I tried to talk three publishers into doing it, and they wouldn't do it. Wow. So I built it. And I wrote 550 individual intervention scripts, and they include scripted activities for conceptual understanding. I would be happy to send you some, Frank, if you just want to try them out. You know, if you, I don't know what grade you teach or if you have a particular child in mind. Um, we also have one up, we have two up on our website. You can get a class-wide intervention protocol and all the materials that you need, and you can get an individual intervention protocol and all the materials that you need to run it for a week. Um, and it gives you a sense of what our protocols look like, but those are just for two skills. So it, it might not be a match. If you're an eighth grade teacher, I don't know. I can't remember what we have up there, but it's on, right on the springmath.com, how it works section. You can scroll down to class-wide intervention or to individual intervention and say, it's a view a sample class-wide intervention or view a sample individual intervention. But if those are not a good fit for what you're doing, then, um, just send, shoot me an email or tweet me and I'll, I'd be happy to send you one. The question about where where would people look if they wanted to kind of learn more about science of math and, and evidence-based practices? Yeah, okay, so evidence-based practices I can talk about. There is no science of math movement yet. I mean, there should be. I'm kind of waiting for somebody to call me out for trying to like steal that momentum. Because <laughs> I, I mean, I am, it's true. I totally am. You know, it's the same science. I just gave a presentation with some of the science of reading people and Jan Hasbrook, who I just enormously respect. And I said, Jan, I don't understand how people are not understanding the instructional hierarchy. And she's like, yeah, you know, we really need to work on that. Even in science of reading, we need to come back to that. So the science that we are all drawing from is the same science. And once you understand the science, figuring out the content is easy. It really is. There's no magic in the content knowledge. I don't believe you have to know it enough to be able to articulate task hierarchies and really understand what are the you know prerequisite understandings what would be a generalized performance what would mastery look like you know but the science itself is is the same science and so um, I don't know if anybody's actually written about the science of math and used those words but I will tell you like the paper the paper that Robin Cotting and I wrote and in, in the communique was about modern math myths and what the evidence says instead, what does evidence-based uh, math intervention say? And that would be a good place to start. And uh, you, can, you can certainly get it on my ResearchGate site. And then we send you to some other good articles, like which you can also get online. Like one of my favorites is uh, there's a Riddle Johnson paper. She worked with John Starr and she's at Vanderbilt. She's worked with lots of people. She, she's a very productive um, scholar. And she wrote it, but she wrote this great review paper of this dichotomy between conceptual understanding and procedural understanding. She really like it's settled. She settles it. It is settled with multiple research studies, 
different independent research teams replicating the same notion that really this is interleaved every day, both together in tandem, not linear. You don't have to establish conceptual understanding before you establish procedural understanding or vice versa. It's it's really a um, in, co in concert understanding. So if you start with our communique piece, we cite pieces like that. So if you want to know more, let's say you're interested in math anxiety, well, we cite the big meta analysis there that you would want to read and um, that would just be a good, good place to start. If you can't get it, I can email it to you too. Um, and then we had a question, um, about acquisition phase, um, as well as application and fluency, what stages of proficiency are there and are there specific instructional practices, which will work? I know you, you touched on, on that a little bit already. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's all I know. <laughs> it's all I know how to do. I mean, if you're in an acquisition stage of learning, then your performance will be characterized by misunderstanding, a high error rate, a lack of confidence, uh, hesitancy. So your performance will be slow, but we don't care because you're not accurate anyway. Um, so we certainly don't want you to do it fast and be wrong. Um, so in, in the acquisition stage of learning, the kinds of things that work are really designed to establish correct skill discrimination. That's the term. And that's a behavioral, it's a behavior analysis term. But basically we want to, first of all, an adult has to be present. So this is not independent work. Why? Because you're making errors. So this is work that really needs to be closely supervised so that we can give you what is really going to work for you, which is immediate corrective feedback. So you should have a high dosage of immediate corrective feedback that finishes with a repetition loop, which is just a fancy way of saying that you represent the task and make sure that you can get it correct, get it right. Um, you might use some cueing, some prompting in this stage of learning to sort of give a hint to support the child to give uh, a correct response. So things like a constant time delay or a graduated de um, prompting procedure can work. Um, so can a within stimulus prompt is a great tactic to use with kids who are in the acquisition stage of learning. Um, types, categories of interventions in math that work really well for acquisition learning that we use in our tool or cover, cover, copy, and compare. You've done that one with your kids, Rachel, and um, guided practice. And they work because we, we don't care how fast you are. We are really focused on understanding. We are going to assist you to arrive at the correct answer. We're going to immediately detect and help you repair any uh, errors that you make. And we're going to use scripted conceptual understanding activities in tandem with that procedural work every single day. Now, once you become accurate, ind independently accurate, so you can, you can respond accurately without adult assistance. And I mean by accurate, better than 90%. Then you're ready for fluency building. And in fluency building, here's a very interesting thing. If you continue to give acquisition support to kids who've moved into the fluency building stage of learning, you'll actually, their trajectories will take a hit. And Matt Burns and Robin Cotting and Lukito did a great meta-analysis and famously labeled that the skill by treatment interaction. So what happens is um, learning goes down if you give the wrong uh, tactic and learning goes up if you give the right tactic. It's the skill by treatment interaction, which is the application of the instructional hierarchy. They published that meta-analysis in 2010. It's one of my favorite papers. 
And um, in fluency building, you, if you continue to give cues and prompts, you're just taking away opportunities to respond because you've got limited time. So you're wasting time giving a prompt that they don't need. Now, this could resonate with you if you think about if you've ever had a child and you counted to three to get them to comply. Most of the time you really created cue dependence in your children because it's not that they really didn't know how to do it and they needed the prompt. It's that they were just not doing it. And we call those a won't do problem, not a can't do problem. And so you counting is just slowing down the inevitable, which is they're not going to comply, comply and you're going to have to deliver <laughs> deliver whatever the next stage is to, to get them on track. So you want to take away the tactics that work for acquisition. You don't want to be doing those in the uh, fluency building stage. Similarly, you don't need immediate corrective feedback in fluency building because children are accurate. So if you're interrupting them to tell them they got it right, you're actually reducing opportunities to respond. So the name of the game in fluency building instruction is opportunities to respond. And if you think about becoming fluent or facile in any kind of performance in your life, speaking a foreign language, um, playing a musical instrument, some athletic skill, playing tennis, it's all about practice. So that's it. You want lots and lots and lots of practice at the right level of difficulty, meaning it's not too hard for you and you have to be accurate. And then once you hit a ceiling, you'll let, you'll begin to level off as you enter the mastery range of performance. And then the mastery range of performance, now you can do things like introduce variation to the task. So give them a more challenging version and see if they can maintain accuracy. If they become inaccurate, you might then need to provide corrective feedback and provide a hint to arrive at a, uh, or a scaffold to get to a correct answer. So that's it. The tactics have to be aligned with the, the stage of learning for children to function well. But you can use this even in core instruction because you can say, all right, today I'm introducing new content. So I need to emphasize acquisition, acquisition tactics for this understanding for the whole class. And then so it's maybe a little messy because there might be some kids who've already got it, but that's OK. And then when you, what you don't want to do is skip the fluency building, which is what I think a lot of teachers do. and. Typically, you know, textbooks are just notoriously crappy sources of um, skill practice materials that, that are well controlled. So you'll have to supplement. You have to supplement in math. You have to be able to go out and find what are some practice opportunities. And let me tell you, you could, these can be creative and fun. We've got a, I love to build games and have children play games, but you don't have to do that. Children just love to beat their score. So, you know, you can just do it the old fashioned way with um, response cards, flashcards, uh, you know, worksheet practice is not um, harmful to children when they're doing it in two minute bursts at the right level of difficulty toward a goal. Um, you know, most of the time when we think about drill and kill, what's really happening is that is crummy instruction. That is not high quality fluency building intervention. So I think sometimes, too, you know, again, this is where that jargon on Twitter can get tricky, because when I talk about fluency building instruction, I'm not I'm talking about exactly how surgeons are trained, pilots are trained, um, musicians become very creative and generative perform performance givers. Um, that is what I'm talking about when I talk about fluency building. And I think a lot of people, what they think about is the crummy drill and kill that they got in school. Awesome. So much good information. Um, uh, kind of like lightning round a couple of questions, if you don't mind a couple yeah. more. Okay. 
<laughs> I was looking at through some of them and I would normally say any last minute questions, please post them, but we're running out of time. So don't post <laughs> unless you have a really super pressing question. <laughs> um, go ahead, Rebecca, what did you have to say? <laughs> Oh, no, uh, one question. Oh, yeah. I thought, can parents use Spring Math if the school doesn't provide it? Is it a parent tool as well? Uh, you know, we built a parent version and then we didn't release it because we felt like it was too complicated for the average parent to keep track of. Um, you know, it's not for Rachel, but it could be. I'm now saying to my people, these kids loved it. They did so well. Can't we help places do this? And, you know, but what we do is we work with schools well and we work with that structure well and we're not even profitable yet. So, I mean, <laughs> but there has to be an appetite for <laughs> investment, right? So, um, but I would love to see that happen. I mean, if you're a faculty and you want it for your kid, just email me and I'll help you do it. And Corey Peltier is asking this question and I don't even know if I say his name right, but he is like this dynamite young math researcher. Do you know his work? Are, are you all, is this like, oh, okay, so you should know his work. He is an early career researcher in Oklahoma. His wife is Tiffany Peltier. I hope I'm saying that right. That's my Louisiana coming out. That's how we would say it there. Um, and she is a science of reading person. So they, they train teachers, they train pre-service teachers, they work with special ed teachers. And he does a lot of dynamite work, specifically in math is on my bucket list to do research with him. I hope we get to do that together. So he has, we've talked about this before. So he's given me a softball question here, but I appreciate it because <laughs> the, the mistake that I think is made with word um, problem work is that we think we have to come in with all of this really intensive labor and time consuming effort to support kids to become accurate with word problem solutions. But I think what we maybe have not done is we have not layered correctly the acquisition and the fluency building and, and placed the word problem work at the generalization stage. That's the piece that I think we, that I think we miss sometimes. But I want to do that study, Corey. We should do, <laughs> we should do that study. <laughs> and and the science of math, or can we say we started it here? You started yeah. it here. So. <laughs> you just said it. That's great. I love it. The only credit we can take is that we were helping the platform. <laughs> Listen, it's so important, and it's it the is. same thing. You know, you've got you've got teachers who feel uh, really stuck in ineffective practices, and they don't even know they're ineffective. They'll work for they they work for a few kids, but those kids were. They did it despite you, not because of the instruction that you gave. Mm -hmm. So it's just the same, the science of reading. And I hope we can get some traction. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then two really quick ones for me. Um, one, what are your thoughts on Common Core? We hear a lot of belly aching about Common Core and this new math and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. And then I wanted to ask about um, assessment, just like CBA, CDBA type of stuff. Like what, what would your go-to like assessment battery if you have a, as a school site? Have a <laughs> <Mine>. <laughs> yeah. Why would I, I mean, did I tell you we generated and tested over 49,000 problems? We have a generator. I mean, in the early days when I was building this, like in my little office and right here that you're looking at it was a different color back then um my husband said to me well at least at the end of this you'll have your own assessment generator because it's such a problem right so i used to use sopris west basic skill builders i mean they're out of print now you can get a you can still get a few online but i would cut them into strips and move them around and hope they were equivalent and then we tested them in a few studies and but you know you gotta have you gotta be able to generate technically equivalent problem sets so that's the issue in math 
Um, so, of course, I think ours is the best, and um, that's what I would recommend. Um, I'm and trying to think. We know from our last um, podcast with you that, yeah, you're not um, looking to do cognitives generally. Correct. No, sorry. <laughs> it just doesn't add any information. I mean, you know, it's just, it's interesting, but it's, it's not, we can't afford really to just do things that are interesting that we might be curious about. We have to be focused on what's, you know, does it have treatment validity, treatment utility. So if I collect it, I can use that information to do something differently tomorrow, or maybe I really can't afford to spend time, you know, just giving this assessment that I really don't need to give. It's not going to help me build a better intervention because, as I said, you know, you you go into intervention planning sort of hedging your bets against language could get in the way, memory could get in the way, organization could get in the way, and you just include that support in all interventions. It's simpler, and you don't have to measure it up front and look for an interaction, which is probably going to be weak anyway. Um, but Common Core, I love Common Core. I don't have a problem with Common Core. Common Core needs a makeover. It's like, you know, it's it just got politicized. And I think it's so misunderstood. And even like states that I've worked in that they go, well, we do not use Common Core. You look at their stuff, it's Common Core. They adopted it like two years later and they just gave it a different name, right? And then they say, we don't use Common Core, but it's Common Core. Because the thing is, math is just a very predictable sequence of uh, instructional outcomes or learning progressions that we can really articulate and we would all pick the same things basically you know and we do like in our tool we built it before common core so then common core came out so we kind of got a chance to like look at it we have an alignment study but we we made a few tweaks but there are some very subtle departures that we make from common core but they're subtle because the point is common core is pretty good yeah i think it's just misunderstood and there's crummy instruction. So like if you get online, I use a video all the time when I when I train in math and it is a video of a teacher saying this is a way to build conceptual understanding. And this is supposed to be a multiplication lesson that is about place value understanding. And the lesson is so poor. It really is that it just looks like a trick with a box, you know, and it's supposed to express make the place value understanding is explicit. It does not. It's very confusing. It's so much more complicated in terms of a trick to get to the solution that if a child had to try to do that later to solve a problem, they wouldn't be able to do it. So I think people think Common Core and like this lady in this video, I know she's going to be in one of my trainings one day and I'm going to be mortified, but she says this is Common Core. And it gives Common Core a bad rap because Common Core is just a, a set of learning outcomes in sequence that are operationalized in ways that I don't have a problem with. They're not necessarily tied to these crummy tactics that you might run into online. Wow, that was also awesome. And we have a lot of viewers asking you to come back. Dr. Vanderhaden. Oh, so, I love you. I love chatting with you guys. Awesome. Thank you so much. You heard it here, viewers. We will um, try to find a date uh, coming up in the fall, maybe, or sometime next school year to continue this conversation. Awesome. Really important stuff, really helpful. Um, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. And as I said at the outset, please continue the conversation. Ask questions and create discussions and um, conversations under the tweets and the posts on Facebook and, and YouTube and iTunes because uh, none of us are as skilled as all of us. And I'd like you also to please, please tune in on Tuesday night, a special night 
um, for a new episode when we have Dr. Sherry Proctor and Dr. Charles um, Barrett for a um, very timely and important conversation on racism, social justice, police brutality, violence, and systemic racism. So we hope that you will tune in and be brave and vulnerable with us as we tackle these really um, important issues in our fields. Thanks, everybody.